How to be a good husband. Poets make notoriously bad husbands. John Milton's marriage to a 17-year-old bride lasted only a few weeks. Shakespeare famously left his wife his second best bed in his will, frequently interpreted as a coded criticism of her. And in more recent times, Vernon Scannell was a known bigamist and wife-beater. There is a whole class of unpleasant, wife-abusing poets who give the lie to the clichéd view of the poet as sensitive flower. Among the romantics, however, there are several who embody the modern ideal of the good husband in the sense of being a life partner with a deep understanding of and enduring devotion to his spouse. Wordsworth loved women and celebrated them in some of the finest Romantic-era love poetry, not least She Was a Phantom of Delight, 1807, which celebrates his wife Mary. We would not recommend, as Wordsworth did, that a husband has a responsibility to command his wife, for the concept of spousely obedience has fallen out of favour these days, as has the marriage ceremony's obedience vow. But otherwise, Wordsworth's prescription for marital endurance has itself endured. The reason firm, the temperate will, endurance, foresight, strength, and skill. The Wordsworths was a very secure marriage. Wordsworth and Mary Hutchison had been childhood sweethearts, having gone to dame school or private elementary school together in Cockermouth, their hometown in the Lake District. Although they soon went their separate ways, they stayed in touch and got married in 1802. Some have speculated that the marriage was a distraction from the more important relationship Wordsworth had with his sister Dorothy, but there was little evidence for that. In fact, the evidence serves only to confirm that Wordsworth's love for Mary was real and enduring. At the age of 42, after a decade together, he was writing erotic letters to his wife of unparalleled intensity. I love you, he writes, with a passion of love that grows till I tremble to think of its strength. How I long to be with thee. Every hour of absence now is a grievous loss. Because we have been parted sufficiently to feel how profoundly in soul and body we love each other, and to be taught what a sublime treasure we possess in each other's love. Oh, my beloved, but I ought not to trust myself to this senseless and visible sheet of paper. Speak for me to thyself, find the evidence of what is passing within me in thy heart. In thy mind, in thy steps as thy touch the green grass, in thy limbs as they are stretched upon the soft earth, in thy own involuntary sighs and ejaculations, in the trembling of thy hands, in the tottering of thy knees, in the blessings which thy lips pronounce, find it in thy lips themselves, and such kisses as I often give. How many husbands in their early forties, ten years into married life, would say as much? Wordsworth did and there is reason to believe that the level of passion never waned. Married life can be pleasurable. Married life can be bleak. Married life can be a mixture of both, as per the Wordsworth's domestic blisses and their appalling losses. The couple lost three of their five children during their lifetimes. 
The words worth sharing of all that life threw at them after their marriage, some for the better and some for the worst, bound them together in the best sense of that term. Were passion the only thing that mattered, we might consider Lord Byron a good husband, except that he drifted into marriage for the thrill of kissing one's wife's maid, had countless extramarital encounters with men and with women, not very least a very public one, with an actress, Susan Boyce, and took pot shots at the ceiling while his wife labored to deliver their daughter in the upstairs room. Clearly, there are other virtues to be considered. Being a good father does not necessarily make you a good husband, but it helps. Wordsworth showed his love for his wife and family by being a conscientious provider. That was why, in 1813, he took a day job, becoming distributor of stamps for Westmoreland in the Penrith area of Cumberland, working for the equivalent of today's inland revenue. Few posts could have been less glamorous, which may explain why he had been so harshly criticized for taking it. The novelist Thomas Love Peacock satirized him in Melancourt as Mr. Peter Paypal Paper Stamp, while Byron, in the dedication to Don Juan, condemned him for being a poetical charlatan and political parasite. They could have been more sympathetic, after all. They all knew what it was to suffer impoverishment. Peacock was driven to apply to the Literary Fund for assistance three times between 1811 and 1813, while Byron was hounded by creditors in the spring of 1813. Much of their animus was political. Byron and Peacock, like other radicals, saw Wordsworth, the great radical poet of the 1790s, as a turncoat who had turned to the despised Tories and saw his place as a sign of his groveling to the establishment. But some of Wordsworth's decision was financial. Then, as now, the money made from poetry by most poets was risible. Lyrical Ballads, 1800, one of the most significant volumes to emerge from the Romantic period brought Wordsworth an income of 50 pounds. And for most of his life, his writing generated less than 100 shillings, five pounds a week. As William St. Clair notes, he could not easily have afforded to buy his own books. In short, Wordsworth's reasons for accepting the stamp distributorship were much more to do with being a good father. By 1813, he was a husband with a growing family. The death of two young children in 1812, Thomas and Catherine Wordsworth, can only have made him feel more determined to provide for the three who survived. You have your salary. Wasn't for that you wrought, Byron asked Robert Southey in the dedication to Don Juan, the correct answer was yes, but it was complicated. Southey accepted the post of Poet Laureate because it yielded an annual income of £90, which, pathetically small as that may sound, was badly needed at his home, Greta Hill in Keswick. His wife, Edith, had borne him seven children, while his former best friend, Coleridge, had deposited his wife and three children at the door to Southey's house as long ago as 1803, never again to take financial responsibility for them. 
Southie had no choice but to support a household of two wives and ten children, and for that reason was willing to accept the laureateship even though it made him the butt of endless jokes among his contemporaries. Partisans of Wordsworth and Southey would argue that they offer a model of husbandly selflessness, which has practical utility to this day. The poets were willing to put the financial well-being of their family first, be careless of the scoffing of their peers at their decisions, and indeed make a degree of self-sacrifice for the sake of their loved ones. Despite the element of compulsion, there was no bitterness in Southey. He loved his wife passionately. Even when in the 1830s she went mad, he continued to love her as he had always done. His friend, Joanna Bailey, saw them after Edith had lost her mind and testified that he was most kind and indulgent to her still, and has always been so. And he loved the children in his household as well. When they entered his library, even if he was in the middle of work, he would break off to tell them stories, do farmyard imitations, or take them out to go mountain climbing. He loved them so much he educated them at home, making lessons a form of play. His son Herbert was practically cherished, as de Quincey recalled. Southey lived almost in the light of young Herbert's smiles, and the very pulses of his heart played in unison to the sound of his son's laughter. No wonder Southey was changed permanently by the ten-year-old Herbert's death. The premature death of Thomas Wordsworth had a similar effect on his father. As Wordsworth confessed to Southey, perhaps the only person he knew who would understand, I dare not say in what state of mind I am. I love the boy with the utmost love of which my soul is capable, and he is taken from me. Oh, Southey, feel for me. And what of the childless? Not all families have more than two members. William Blake did not have children with his wife Catherine, and that may have enabled them to survive the long periods of poverty when there was no patronage to bail them out of financial difficulty. Blake's first biographer recalled that Catherine Blake had once been a beautiful brunette, but that time and impoverishment had made her common and coarse-looking, except insofar, says one who knew her, as love made her otherwise and spoke through her gleaming black eyes. They were two of a kind, like her husband, and however weird some folk found it, Catherine had visions like her spouse. Not only was she wont to echo what he said, to talk as he talked on religion and other matters, but she too learned to have visions, to see processions of figures wending along the river in broad daylight, and would give a start when they disappeared in the water. In terms of what makes a good husband, plainly, it helps to find the right partner, either through luck or judgment. But to deepen your mutual affection into a shared outlook on the world, like the Blakes, is even more important. Blake was Catherine's friend, mentor, and lover, and seems to have remained true to her throughout their married lives. William Haley, who knew them both, observed, they have been married 17 years and are as fond of each other as if their honeymoon were still shining. Their closeness derived in part from the fact that they worked close together. 
Catherine not only did the housework, even to the extent of making her husband's clothes, but she assists him in his art. She draws, she engraves, and sings delightfully, and is so truly the half of her good man that they seem animated by one soul. Blake, too, accepted the help of his patrons, but was too insignificant a figure in the literary world to attract any criticism. And in any case, he and his wife were so convinced of the genius of his art that they had no fear of the poverty they suffered. They survived it because their love for each other was indissoluble. There were probably more bad husbands among the romantics than good ones. Shelley has received much criticism in modern feminist work for lamentable treatment of both of his wives. But those who enjoyed enduring relationships with theirs, such as Wordsworth, Southey and Blake, may have something to teach us. William Wordsworth, she was a phantom of delight. She was a phantom of delight when first she gleamed upon my sight, a lovely apparition sent to be a moment's ornament, her eyes as stars of twilight fair, like twilights too, her dusky hair, but all things else about her drawn from Maytime and the cheerful dawn, a dancing shape, an image gay, to haunt, to startle and waylay. I saw her upon nearer view, a spirit yet a woman too, her household motions light and free, and steps of virgin liberty, a countenance in which did meet sweet records, promises as sweet, a creature not too bright or good for human nature's daily food, for transient sorrows, simple wiles, praise, blame, love, kisses, tears and smiles. And now I see with eye serene the very pulse of the machine, a being breathing thoughtful breath, a traveller between life and death, the reason firm, the temperate will, endurance, foresight, strength and skill, a perfect woman nobly planned to warn, to comfort and command, and yet a spirit still and bright with something of angelic light. <laughs>